I'm Beatrice Collier. And I'm Georgina Wolfe. And this is the Pupillage Podcast, brought to you by Middle Temple and us, your hosts. It's a podcast for anyone considering a career as a barrister, from students at school, university or on the law conversion or bar course. It's for those contemplating a career change later in life and wondering what it might entail. And it's for the army of pupillage applicants out there, from those applying for pupillage for the first time to the battle-weary, giving it just one last go. We know that at times the search for pupillage can seem daunting, so in each episode we talk to junior barristers, fresh from their own pupillages, members of pupillage committees, senior barristers, QCs, judges, masters of the bench and lots of other guests and ask them for their advice, what to do, what to avoid and how to succeed. In this episode, we talk to three practitioners about some of the biggest and most popular areas of practice, crime and family law. We also discover how established practitioners can suddenly stumble upon entirely new practice areas. There are more criminal barristers than there are barristers practising in any other area, and it's an area that attracts huge numbers of applicants every year. To give you an idea of the highs and lows of the life of a criminal barrister, we heard from two criminal barristers who came to us straight from court. First, here is Bernard Richmond, QC, Master of Middle Temple, Assistant Coroner and Middle Temple Advocacy Trainer, who told us not just about his criminal practice, but about another area of law too, inquests. I chose crime because I was very struck by the fact that those people who I mixed with back in my home area were very much disempowered by the system. They seemed to have things done to them rather than for them. I saw people very often in situations where they really didn't understand what was going on and didn't have the wherewithal to speak. So that was the first thing. And then secondly, of course, the television showed the criminal defence work of people like Rumpole and I was completely hooked and then I got really interested in criminal law as a subject so it was natural to go into that sort of work. Can you tell our listeners what does a criminal practice look like day to day? Messy. (laughs) Very messy and very disorganised because there are lots of things happening all at once. You're getting lots of emails cases are moving very quickly you're being asked to do an awful lot of things often in a very short space of time, often for very little pay. So you have to be prepared to burn the midnight oil, but in a way that's very different from if you're sitting there just churning through lots and lots and lots of paper, because what you're doing very often is trying to work out what you desperately need to deal with at any particular time, what can wait. If you're running a trial, you're getting new material served on you almost on a daily basis. Things may be happening in court because trials are, are evolve no matter how much you plan them. And you're, you're just trying to keep the balls in the air, really. That's how it's always felt to me. I think what you're trying to do is you are trying to cope with a number of things happening all at once with not a lot of time to think and prepare Uh, some of those things and so you have to prepare what you can but you have to be prepared for the fact also that stuff is just going to happen so if you like the more predictable life if you like to be able to prepare every single thing to its ultimate degree if you like to have your papers in apple pie order and everything's organized and then crime is not really for you certainly not the sort of crime i do maybe fraud which is very complex but 
my friends who do commercial law, I think, would find what I do absolutely exhausting. But then I find <laughs> what they do absolutely exhausting. So that's all right. <laughs> you've got, to, you've got ultimately, you've got to get a buzz out of what you're doing, and it's the same. I think if you go into medicine, if you want to walk in, work in trauma and A and E then you are not doing it because you want to have a list of things which are relatively predictable. You know what the day is going to be. It might be very intricate. It might be very careful. But you're not going to have that feeling of what's going to come through the door next. How am I going to be challenged? And so it's a different type of practice. And it's the same, I think, for crime. Crime is one of the most popular practice areas for students. And so our listeners probably don't need to know the answer to this question. But I would love to know, what is your favourite bit about your criminal practice? Well, I'd be lying if I didn't say my favorite bit is when juries stand up and say not guilty because that's just a huge buzz is your heart still in your mouth oh anybody who says they don't get nervous before they go into court and they don't get anxious before the jury comes back and gives a verdict to my mind just doesn't have a soul anymore i still get nervous when i'm sitting as a recorder and the jury come back and i have to say to myself actually bernard it doesn't matter you know, one or the other, you've still got a job to do. But yeah, that, that moment is very, very deeply theatrical. Then I suppose we need to ask, what about the worst? What's the worst bits? When they come back and say guilty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> when, uh, and also when you see somebody who really is powerless and everything you do, you, you just can't get past that. So a lot of people who suffer from from mental disorder or learning difficulty Mm. are really, really powerless. And try what you may, they are still let down time and time again by a system. I find that very difficult. I find also the amount of exhaustion amongst my colleagues, particularly the young ones, really difficult. I'm really pleased that we've put well-being much further up the agenda because it is just soul-destroying to see someone who is running left, right and centre and run ragged and you think this person's actually spent a long time studying for this and it's people, people are really proud of it and it doesn't then turn out to be exactly what they were hoping for and, and I think people do sometimes feel a bit abused. Yeah, and, and I think it's fair to say the junior bar practising crime has had a very tough time of it in recent years. They have, but they are amongst the most robust people and they are very much a group of very talented people who are very dedicated to what they do. And I think one of the things you notice about criminal practitioners is no matter how many times they get knocked down, most of them feel they can get back up again. Although some of them say, enough's enough. Why shouldn't they? Because they then go out into the world and land themselves amazing jobs because their skill set is valued in every other profession other than the one they've trained for is how they feel yeah Um, do you have any advice that you would like to give to those considering a criminal practice don't let the naysayers put you off if you genuinely believe you have the talent there are no matter what people say a number of pupils out there the sets are very different in what they're looking for If you get into a set of chambers, then there is a decent prospect, if you have talent, that there will be work there. You may have to do a slightly less straightforward practice than you expected. Maybe you'll have to do something else. Maybe you'll have to do a bit of teaching on the side. But the reality is that if you're in court regularly, 
hopefully you can make it work and make it pay. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, however hard it is, try and reduce as much as you can the amount of debt you get into. Because sometimes I think the position is when you get a wadge of money, then of course that wadge of money is there and you sort of spend it as if it's a resource there for you. Whereas I think what you should do is treat it as perhaps your tax money or something like that, where every time you dip into it, it's something you have to really, really think about. So I'm not suggesting people aren't careful, but that's something you have to do as well. And the other thing is you have to be very careful not to allow your parents to give up everything because the sense of loss, if your parents have put everything they want into your practice as well as everything you've got, if then it's not working out, I think is phenomenal. And people don't think about that. And you get a lot of that going. And we see people coming for scholarships. And, you know, parents who are very well off, they've given their child some money and that's fine. And then you get these these families, and I certainly come from one of those, where the idea of somebody going into the professions was a big, big deal. And so you would get people taking out loans, remortgaging their houses, staying on working longer than they planned to, all geared at funding this this career. And, you know, I think you have to, as it were, try and have a little balance in in how much you invest. That sounds a bit negative, but... No, sensible, sensible. I think it's really important to have these these real views. Not that you'll stop your parents, by the way. (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah. Can we ask you, Bernard, about another area of law? Can, Can we ask you about inquests? Yes, Can you tell us and our listeners what they are and why it is that they're fast becoming a practice area in their own right? Yeah, you've probably got the impression now that essentially I'm dealing with death. That's really what I I seem to deal with because that's really my criminal practices around mostly homicide and horrible crime. Inquests are a very important hearing where essentially the court is trying to ascertain who died when where, how, and the medical cause. And it's really a hearing which recognises that nobody should die without somebody pausing to reflect on why that happened. So it recognises, I suppose, the importance of life and of everybody having somebody recognise that you were here and that you mattered. Now, to families in particular who've lost people in circumstances which call for an inquest, that can be very important. And without going into the law and being slightly nervous because one of the interviewers is one of the leading practitioners in the area, essentially you've got situations where the death is unexplained or unexpected or suspicious, I think it's a fair summary of the position. And it can lead to lessons being learnt, recommendations being made to prevent future deaths, or ultimately, for many people, just the feeling that there's nothing that's been covered up and they've got a better idea of what happened. And sometimes, it, and I think many times actually, it brings a significant amount of closure for people, not just the families. I've been in inquests where the doctors, for example, have made a mistake mm. and it's the opportunity where they feel able to say sorry. Yes. Because it's not litigation, it's an inquiry, an inquest. I see. And it's a, it's a very interesting, very different forum. It used to be seen as a bit of a slightly on-the-edge, tangential, weird jurisdiction and, of course, after, I think, probably Lady Diana 
Princess Diana died and we had that, they suddenly became terribly sexy and now everybody's getting involved in them. And they really have become, I think, one of the major areas of growth in people wanting to pursue their rights at law. So for our listeners who think that sounds really interesting and would like to understand a bit about it from a practitioner's perspective, what would you say are the sort of highs and lows of being an inquest practitioner? Well, the lows are that you can't make a closing speech, <laughs> even when there's a jury. It's a, it's a very different sort of advocacy. It's very subtle. It's very non-confrontational. It's supposed to be anyway. So it can sometimes be a little frustrating. And it's fair to say that the, the, the coroners are a very diverse range of people. You can have sometimes quite mixed and quite bumpy experiences because actually you are in an, an inquisitorial situation and therefore the personality of the coroner can actually dominate much more. I think that's fair. Certainly I know when I'm sitting as an assistant coroner, I'm aware of the fact that... I have a great deal more flexibility and control about what I do and sometimes you have to rein yourself in and I really do have the piece of paper that says, shut up. (laughs) But mine actually is long because it says, no, really, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) So anyone wanting to go into that, that's the sort of low. The, The highs are that, particularly if you are not attracted to the sort of confrontational adversarial advocacy and some people aren't you really can just roll your sleeves up and try and pick apart what's missing and so it's like a little it probably is like a jigsaw puzzle because you're looking at where there is a piece missing that you can possibly add in and you're trying to add value and you're trying to influence the proceedings in a very different sort of way than in an adversarial situation and depending on who you're for if you're for families Mm. you are very often trying to pick apart what happened very often without a great deal of material to help you if you're for the the more establishment bodies or companies and the like very often what you're trying to do is you're trying to control the exercise so intellectually that's quite interesting as well so you're trying to stop as it were the free reign of inquiry going here there and everywhere and keep it focused and make sure that people are sticking to the objects of the the inquest so it's quite a challenge for everybody and it's intellectually very stimulating in a different way to criminal but of course the two work very well yeah i see that's really interesting and again it's only quite recently i think that criminal practitioners have begun to see that inquests do marry up very very well with what we're doing so all those pi lawyers and clean neg lawyers beware because we're on our <laughs> we're way coming to the get criminal you. bar is coming <laughs> oh, fantastic bernard richmond qc do you have any final advice that you'd like to share with our listeners Oh, sharing. I think oversharing, too much oversharing goes on. I think what's really important is that if if the bar matters, and I believe it does, it matters because it is a group of people who wish to be not elitist, but an elite. People who have the capacity to change the events of litigation or any hearing by the quality of their persuasive skills and their language. And I think that's a, an honourable aim. But it requires, first of all, integrity, 
but also it requires those core skills and one of those is language and I think one of the problems that we have at the moment is that people don't read widely enough they don't study language enough and it's very odd that when I was growing up my mum would really berate me if I dropped into deep cockney or didn't use the right language because I was brought up to think that whatever job you were doing actually speaking relatively well was something you had to do and that was very much in working class communities the idea that actually there's no excuse for speaking in a sloppy manner there's no reason why you shouldn't be trying to read and all of those things and and I think what we're getting to is we're getting to a system where people think well actually it's more important that I'm reading all of my law books and not thinking about the language and the tools I'm going to use and the second thing is no matter how grim it gets there's no point doing it if you're not having just a small bit of fun (laughs) so you always have to spot where the fun is in what you're doing and hopefully then you can carry on for as long as I have, um, hopefully with the same degree of completely ridiculous luck. Thank you ever so much, Master Richmond. From the heady heights of the practice of a criminal silk to the reality of life as a junior criminal practitioner, Rupert Kent of Atkinson Bevan Chambers gave us a blast of reality. We heard that it's not all wigs and dazzling cross-examination. It can also involve long, underpaid days dealing with less than exciting telephone schedules. Rupert Kent, welcome to the Pupillage podcast. Thanks ever so much for coming all the way from court to speak to us today. Thank you for having me. It's perhaps telling that you have come straight from court because you are a criminal barrister and criminal barristers, we understand, spend most of their time in court. That is right. Criminal barristers would be in court most days of the week. Certainly junior barristers most days of the week. I've been at Snaresbrook Crown Court. But yeah, you're in court most days of the week as a criminal barrister. And why did you decide to become a criminal barrister? Well, uh, criminal barristering is all about advocacy. So if you are keen on advocacy, I would suggest thinking about uh, being a criminal barrister. Uh, And it's also about jury trials, which most areas of the law, I think defamation may have a few jury trials, but criminal law is about jury trials. And that that is uh, a... Uh, an interesting and appealing was and is area of the law for me. Rupert, tell us a bit about, tell our listeners about you and what you do. Okay, so I, uh, as I say, I'm a criminal barrister. I mainly prosecute. Um, I do defend as well. Uh, In my chambers, we mainly do organised crime. That's the sort of apex of it. So, for example, at the moment, I'm doing a gang case all about firearms And we would typically do multi-handed cases, say where you have one or two prosecution barristers prosecuting um, however many defendants it is. So in the current case, it's three defendants, and they typically are uh, represented by single counsel, but sometimes by two counsel. And so invariably, it is either you or you and one other against lots of other counsel. So that's really what I, I get up to. You've been in practice, I think, for about 10 years yeah, now. Yeah, 10 years, yeah. Casting your mind back to the early years of practice, because our listeners are looking for pupillage at the moment, so they're going to be interested yeah. in the early years of practice. Can you describe what sort of things you got up to at that point in your career? So when I was first on my feet, uh, that would be the magistrate's court, occasional uh, um, cases in the Crown Court, no, no Crown Court trials. There would be mentions terrifying in front of judges, not knowing what you were doing, or perhaps actually knowing what you were doing, but feeling like you didn't. 
Um, uh, but otherwise, in the Magistrates Court, which is pretty relaxed, uh, my uh, first case I remember vividly was a probation breach uh, in Hertfordshire in front of some magistrates. My phone went off. People were talking in the background, etc. So you quite quickly get at ease in the magistrates' court. It's the Crown Court that's a sort of big thing. And you, you step into the Crown Court uh, sort of tentatively doing mentions at the beginning. And then it's only about a year or two in that you start doing Crown Court trials. And that's where you have juries. And that's really the focus of a criminal barrister's um, once you're up and running, day-to-day role, really. And for those of our listeners who are thinking at the moment about pursuing a career at the criminal bar, what piece of advice do you have for them in in terms of uh, understanding what they're actually going to be letting themselves in for lifestyle-wise? Yeah, so it is, uh, because you're in court every day, it's a sort of firefighting job. So, I mean, when, when you are more senior, it's a lot more preparation. Um, so you may have gaps between big cases. But certainly when you're junior um, or when you're senior in a case, it is day-to-day preparing, as anyone, as we all know when we're in a trial, is preparing for the next days or even the next session. So lunch preparing for the afternoon session, uh, post-court in the afternoon preparing for the next morning and so on. It's a sort of firefighting thing where you're constantly preparing little parts of a case um, there is quite a lot of work on the weekend if you don't manage your time well. I think time management, I don't know what you guys think, is really important. And I think there's a lot of people who want this job to be extremely vocational and want to just spend their entire lives doing it. And I think if you're, if you're quite rigorous uh, and focused when you prepare, you can have a life outside work. This job can sort of take your life over a bit if you're not careful, I think. So the world of a criminal barrister is adrenaline, is last-minute instructions, thinking on your feet, preparing at the last minute, standing up in court, wearing your wig and gown. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of... It's not really that. That's what you think it's going to be like. I mean, it is a bit of adrenaline in the sense that advocacy always provides you with a tiny bit of adrenaline, I think. Um, (laughs) Only a tiny bit. Well, you do get pretty used to it, and there are definitely points where you have absolutely no adrenaline whatsoever. So I actually sometimes feel quite bored on my feet. If you've been going for three hours or something and, you know, you're going through a telephone schedule, there's no adrenaline there. It's it's just boring, Um, which is probably not a very good sign, given your audience must be asleep. But it's not really adrenaline. It's when you get up and running, um, this is common to all advocates, it must be. It's more about just satisfaction. It's about preparing something properly, reducing it to its core points and presenting it cleanly without fuss. It's that sort of thing. It's not... It's not sort of lively. I mean, sometimes it is, but it's not really cut and thrust cross-examination most of the time. It's normally just focused preparation, focused submissions, less is more, that sort of thing. That's what it comes down to. Rupert, what is it about the life of a criminal barrister and the practice of a criminal barrister that you love? Uh, I love um, day-to-day being engaged in dealing with advocacy, facts, opponents, judges... Uh, it is very all-consuming and very engaging from that point of view. And there is, uh, there is nothing better than feeling like you have performed uh, well in a cross-examination because a cross-examination with a witness in front of a jury is very much performance. It's two of you, it's a witness uh, and you, and you're just in a little fight. You know, if it's a defendant, they want to get off at all costs, normally because they have to go to prison otherwise. 
uh, and you, because it's in a public forum and uh, everyone's watching you, and especially your peers, you always worry what your peers think as an advocate. I think if everyone was being honest, they'd say that. Uh, you know, you really want to do well from a competitive point of view. And so when that goes well, that is extremely satisfying. Uh, I think satisfaction is an important part. It's less excitement, it's more satisfaction. It's coming away feeling like a, a good job has been done. So that's uh, just generally preparing something well and having made the absolute best of it. What about the downsides, Rupert? Because we've heard a lot in the press over the last, well, several years really about how it's tough at the criminal bar. Mm. What would you say to our listeners about that? Uh, so obviously financially uh, it is most of the work is legal aid almost all of it is legal aid there are some chambers out there uh, who do uh, a lot of private work and insurer based uh, paid work and stuff like that but I mean the reality is that most people at the criminal bar are doing some or all legal aid work as part of their practice and legal aid uh, is something that is has been reduce, reduced over the time I've been doing it, so you get less for the work that you do that you would have got when I started. It's not something that politicians get very much pressure uh, on from the voting public, but fundamentally there are better uh, paid areas of the law out there. It's not bad, and you there are you can still make a decent living. It depends what a decent living is in your eyes, but it's never going to be Goldman Sachs banking standards you have to do the right sort of work so that sort of multi-handed work that i talked about is can be a lot better paying than other sorts of work uh the knockabout stuff is not going to pay you very well and you do need to think seriously about where you want to be in terms of your lifestyle as you go through your life so i imagine most of you listening would be um let's say unmarried without children at the moment but when you are married you know, where do you want to live when you have children? How do you want to educate them? Do you want to pay for education or not? All those sort of lifestyle things, which probably don't really concern you too much at the moment because you're more focused on your job and things like that and getting a foothold professionally, but they are important and you don't want to regret it when you're older. So you need to think quite carefully. But you're not, you're not necessarily going to be having no money if you do the criminal bar. Just, you've, got to be, you've got to be good at it and do the right sort of work. And is it fair to say that the first few years are going to be tough financially? And I'm thinking of most criminal pupillages, their pupillage award would be something like £12,000. So really very little. You may have some additional earnings on top of that. But you really will be on almost minimum wage type income for the first few years. And if our listeners have got huge debts, as many, many will have... Um, that's something that you have to factor into a decision to become a part of the criminal bar. Yeah, I, I mean, it's really difficult financially at the beginning because you get paid very little. You get paid uh, in, you know, sort of a long time after the event. Uh, you know, so you won't earn anything when you're on a fee probably until uh, three months in or something at the earliest. And what you'll find you do is you spend all of your tax money and VAT money keeping yourself afloat. And that, on that subject, actually, I think that's quite an important subject for anyone who wants to be a barrister. Um, or, you know, for any sort of barrister, you are self-employed and you have to conduct your own uh, affairs, financially speaking. You have to make sure you save your tax money and you pay your VAT. And that, is, that can be quite difficult, especially when you build up debt. So, you know, you're not salaried as a barrister and that's an additional stress I think people should, should think about and ask advice on. 
What about travel? Because some might feel that a criminal practice involves lots of travelling all over the country, constantly on trains. Yeah. Is, is that just a cliché or no, is that in fact the reality? That's definitely true. When I first started, I, every day I was usually into Essex or Kent or something like that. I've been to Aberystwith for 9am. My, ple- my client pleaded guilty. They said, can you come back in three weeks for a report? I said, can't we just do it today? They said, no. You know, you say you have to... There's a lot of travelling. Uh, now, I don't really leave London, so it changes. It's as, you, as you get older, the whole thing gets a lot easier from every point of view. You're less stressed, or you've got bigger cases, but you know what you're doing, you get paid more, uh, you don't have to travel so much. It's frantic in the first few years, and it does calm down. So you have to accept there's going to be... A, a, it's, t- it's physically tiring at the beginning. And as, as a rough guide for our listeners, how long would you say it takes to, to get over that initial really quite challenging and gruelling bit to something that's perhaps a little more manageable and mm. a little more settled? Uh, probably a couple of years uh, from when you're first on your feet, a couple of years, something like that. Once you, you, you know, I mean, you quite quickly start to think you know what you're doing. But, you know, everything in this job is different to done it once. And at the beginning, you have done, not done most things once. That's the thing. And so every time something new comes along, you get a bit panicky again. And then you get to a sort of point after a couple of years where you've done most, most things, really. You may have even been to the Court of Appeal or something like that. And then actually you think, well, it's not that bad. But until you've done your first jury trial, you worry about that. Until you've been to the Court of Appeal first time, you worry about that. Etc. So a couple of years, but I mean, ultimately, I don't think any of us really know what we're doing, do we? We were just still learning. <laughs> you're just sort of pretending the whole way along. That, that, that is, I, oh, I've heard it say, one of the joys of the job. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, I just <laughs> quite like to know everything and then just relax. <laughs> um, Rupert, can you offer some words of encouragement to those who are thinking about a career at the criminal bar? Yeah. Say, so I never feel bored in my job. Uh, I never, never clock watch. Uh, unless I'm doing a phone schedule, I suppose. Which is rather <laughs> yeah, it's a satisfying job and it goes well. Rupert Kent, thank you ever so much for talking to us today. Thank you very much. Master Jessica Lee is a family practitioner and she came on the Pupillage podcast to tell us what a family practice entails. Welcome, Master Jessica Lee, to the Pupillage podcast. Thank you ever so much for coming to talk to us. Could you please start by telling our listeners who you are and what you do? I'm Jessica Lee. I'm in private practice at 1GC Family Law. Perhaps you can then tell us, start off by telling us a little bit how you came to have a family law practice. Was it something that you'd always wanted or was, was it more a case of this practice area finding you? For me, as it happens, um, it was actually something that I wanted to do. I did look at all other options and I did do mini pupillages and um, and I did at the, in my first year of practice as well, different areas of civil and so on. Um, but for me, right, actually as a teenager, I'd wanted to do that. Um, as it happens, my mum had been a, a children's nurse and um, where she was working, there happened to be a, a court case involved, um, which I remember very, very clearly as a teenager. Teenager. And I was really quite interested right from that start about the whole combination of family dynamics, family relationships, um, and how that interplays with the law. And I've never lost that. In fact, I still still love it every day. That, there's some really interesting things there that I'd like to ask you about. First of all, it sounds like you, you, you've spoken about family dynamics, but you said that you had looked at other areas as well. What is it in particular about a family law practice that you can explain to our listeners is, is attractive from your point of view? 
from my point of view, it's that combination of human behaviour, which I find completely compelling. Um, every single case is different. You are trying to problem solve and make help people work their way through that. And in a family setting, um, to me, within those family dynamics, that's more interesting than any other scenario, say a business scenario, for example. Um, for me, it's also a good combination between a court-based practice and advisory work. So I'm in court quite a few days uh, per week but not every day because I've also got preparation to do and I've got conferences and advisory. Also within family law um, I, I do work to do with children and I do work to do with finances and divorce. I do both and I like intellectually I like that variety. Um, quite a few people in family law specialise down again and just do children or, or finances um, but I, I like the combination of both and you can often help families through an entire scenario uh, and making their decisions for their future um, which for me is a huge privilege and every day is uh, I'm meeting people and you are trying to sort them out of what is often a very difficult situation situation it is to do with their children their flesh and blood it might be to their parents uh, it might be to do with the home that they've set up they're now having a different change and they need help with that so to me I find all of those um, I mean there are pressures and responsibilities but it's a real privilege to be able to do that I find that with the combination of family law um, and the combination of court work and advisory work to me that's an attractive combination. In the applicants that you see seeking pupillage in your chambers what qualities do they have that make you think oh yeah this will be a really good family practitioner I think oh that's a very good question there's a combination I think of skills I, I absolutely that I think they have to be thoughtful people who are going to be empathetic and their client has to believe that their advocate believes in them yes. and um, will fight their corner you have to have a level of flexibility with your skills and what I mean by that is so one day I might be dealing with a client um, who maybe has an addiction um, or children, they're in social care and so on, social services, sorry, and um, and that's obviously a very difficult situation to manage that. And then I might be advising a sort of couple who maybe have a lot of resources financially through their divorce and, and so on. So it's very different. It can be very different all within the space of, say, 24 hours at times. Um, and I think you're looking for a personality that won't be phased by that and that could cope with that, as well as, of course, that tenacity and the intellectual abilities and so on, and somebody who can can mix, I think, between all of those different clients and their particular needs. Thank One you. of the, the challenges for our listeners, many will be doing the Graduate Diploma in Law, which teaches seven core areas of law, none of which is family law. How can students or potential pupillage applicants get some insight into family law? Um, yes, in fact, I did that. I did that course, or the equivalent name, at the time, um, and I we, we I was able to choose a family law component. I think for I think it's just an extended essay or something at the end, but um, and that's still the case. I think you. I, th I think there's a range of things to do, actually. I think you also need to look beyond law. I would spend some time, if you can, do some work experience uh, in, say, um, children's services with a local authority, um, definitely with um, solicitors as well in terms of dealing with financial cases or children's matters. Um, I would try and get some work experience, if you can, um, through maybe the court service or with go and observe some of the family courts you'll have to get permission to do that although um so you, you need to find out about that but um you should be able to go so that i think there's a range of issues but it's really about problem solving um 
maybe even anything to do with diplomacy, anything to do, try and, try and think about personal conflicts outside of just being in a family law case and, and some work experience that, that might help with that. A lot of applicants we have have done maybe some work with charities, um, say Women's Aid, or worked or assisted with a local children's centre. Anything along those lines um, would be helpful. So you mentioned something that may be news to some of our listeners. The family courts sit in private, so it's not like the, the magistrate's courts or the a Crown Court where you can just walk in and hear a, a criminal hearing, for example. If it's a family case, the general rule is that the members of the public are not allowed to go in and hear it. So does that mean that mini pupillages are more important than in other areas of law? I do think that's right. Um, and although there have been changes with the family courts, and in fact um, people are allowed allowed in much more um, than they were, but although there aren't many uh, attendees or applicants, some cases are still in private unless the court decide otherwise. So um, they, are, they are really important. Mini pupillages are your... Are, you know that is your your window into understanding the world that you want to work in. Um, they are critical, and I would absolutely undertake as many many as you can. Um, that had financial implications on me when I was training, but I managed to get extra part time jobs in the evening and weekends in order so I could do things like mini pupillages as well. So um, it is hard to take five days off if you need the income. I understand that, but please as, do as many as you can. Would be my advice in terms of mini pupillages family law. And for those who have studied the GDL and who've followed your advice, they've got lots of experience of family law work, but they've never actually studied it academically. Is that a problem when applying for pupillage? It's, n- it's not a problem per se, because all the chambers will know about that. But that, it, that but there is an opportunity. I would definitely ask about uh, what textbooks to, to, to look at. I would definitely ask as many people as you can find when you're doing many pupillages um, about the Red Book. We have the Family Court Practice, which we use. I wouldn't suggest reading that up. <laughs> Page from front to back that might take you quite a long time um, but you you need to start understanding um, the rules um, as soon as you can and you need to understand some of the case law uh, sign up to say family law week um, website and and try and start reading some of the precedents they come out every week with, with the new cases so um, and there are there might be some seminars that you could attend that might be more difficult probably until you've got pupillage but don't be afraid to ask and definitely start reading as soon as you can. And, and perhaps a word of warning for those who've done um, mini pupillages and seen confidential cases. If they're writing about them on application forms, they should be rather careful about naming people, shouldn't they? They should not be naming anybody. So you're going to need Do to not, not name anybody. So they might have to put A versus B or yeah, something like exactly. that. exactly. Yeah, definitely. You've described your sort of typical working week would that be the same for junior members of your set as well um, in terms of the blend of court work what what can our listeners expect from a family practice at the junior end yes I mean I, I suppose that they one change would be you 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 might have more demands to do may sort of more emergency or last minute applications but that doesn't necessarily go away as you become more senior um, but I suppose the um, availability to do that there is a pressure on the on the junior practitioners but of course from their point of view then they get experience of doing emergency applications so we have sort of interim care orders that's the sort of initial application often by a local authority to become involved with um, with a family and if they're looking for any 
um, if they want to take any sort of statutory orders or really if the children, they're looking to move them to foster care, that type of scenario. Um, by their nature, they can be planned applications and they are sometimes, but there also is an element of emergency with that. Say yes. a child presents at hospital, there's um, an injury which may, they don't know, but it might be non-accidental is the phrase. That if that's the referral, then social services have to, have to act very quickly. Yes. So there's also emergencies, you know, with passport applications or if there's a concern that a parent is about to flee the country and so on. So you do get exposure from very early on to some very intense um, scenarios, actually, which probably you hadn't thought that you'd have to deal with early on. But there's always, and what well, certainly we have in our set and many sets, is, is you make sure that there are senior people available who are available to advise you if you do have to, to go and deal with something like that at short notice. So much easier now there are mobile phones. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. When I was starting out, it was it's a bit more different. We did have mobile phones just about, but it was not the world we're living in now. Yes, I'm starting to think maybe a family law practice is the way to go. <laughs> yeah. Come and join us. Thank you for listening to the Pupillage podcast with us, Beatrice Collier and Georgina Wolfe, brought to you by Middle Temple. Production support and music by Alex Dopirala. Huge thanks to the wonderful team here at Middle Temple. James Rogerson for helping us with the logistics, Darren Latty for coffees and pastries, and Colin Davidson for his enthusiasm, encouragement and awe-inspiring little black book. Please check out the show notes for more on our guests links to sources of information and a glossary of terms used in each episode. We'd also like to thank all our clerks and our senior clerk, Mark Waller, who've not disowned us for sneaking off down the road to Middle Temple for recording sessions. If you have questions you would like answered in future episodes or want to give us some feedback, please email us at pupillagepodcast at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast particularly for sharing your rather amazing braces. I'm sorry that our listeners can't see them, but they're blue and pink and they go very well with your bright green tie. Yeah, but they don't go well with a green tie, we're cutting it.